Our first passage picks up right where Peter's sermon at Pentecost left off. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his, Peter's word at Pentecost, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then picking up in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a, but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Hey, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And while the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Tonight we're going to talk about the Spirit's collision with community, our third in a series uh, called Collision Course. There's four things to keep your eyes out to as we we, uh, talk about this. The cause of Christian community, the character of Christian community, the cancers that infect it, and the consequence of Christian community. 
Let me pray for us. Father, we pray for focus of our minds, for rest for our hearts. As distractions abound, we came into the room with distractions and there's more here tonight. So uh, would you work in the midst of that? Would you work over that? Help us to hear you when we open your word, Lord. We know we are hearing your voice, not a mere man's. And that is our hope, and it's my hope too, and I need this. So I ask you, uh, on behalf of myself and my friends, Spirit, meet with us, teach us, show us yourself, show us each other as we look at your design for our relationships with each other and with you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, since I was a little kid, I was frequently at big sporting events. My dad, the company that he worked for, had like big blocks of tickets to a lot of the Atlanta sports teams. And when they weren't getting used and no one else in his office wanted them, he got to take us, me and my brothers and my sister. And so growing up, uh, you know, a couple times a year, I'd get to go to a Braves game with them or a Hawks game or every now and then a Falcons game. And I learned pretty early on, most of the fun for me, at least as much fun as watching the game, was people watching at these different events. Then I get up to Athens and my years here in, in undergrad and grad school, and the people watching is better at the tailgating than at the game. Or if it's a night game, it's, it's really good in the stadium seeing people who've been tailgating all day long. But the trend stayed the same. The people watching was, was as good as the action happening on the field. Now, I think the best sport to watch is soccer. I've never been to an Atlanta United game myself, but I have friends who have. <laughs> and I've heard their kind of stories when they get back from these games. And I've seen it on TV, and y'all probably watched a lot of the stuff a few years ago or a couple of years ago at the championship. But soccer draws probably the widest spectrum of fans than any sport I've ever been to and watched. Like baseball kind of has its niche crowd, and NFL or NBA kind of has its kind of people you'd expect to be there. But at a soccer game... Whether it's World Cup or some, you know, Manchester United or Atlanta United team, you see everybody there. And this is what my friends have told me. Just, I mean, Atlanta is a pretty diverse city now in every sense of the word. Young and old people are at the games together. Diehard Trump voters are right next to diehard Bernie voters, and they're both losing their voice over the action on the field. Men and women... Rich, kind of educated, elite people are bear-hugging and high-fiving poor blue-collar people after goals. And everybody is singing the same songs, the same chants. They're wearing the same jersey in this huge melting pot. But for 90 minutes, what's happening on that field is all that's going on in that stadium. And it transcends all of the little diversities and differences of all the people that fill the stadium. And it just fades to the background. And what moves to the foreground is the team and the action on the field. It transcends everything else. This is how it is with any transcendent experience that we shell out a lot of cash and rearrange entire weeks of our lives to be at. So whether it's a huge sporting event or whether it's the Jonas Brothers reunion tour, I know some of you are out there, I heard about this, or whatever the experience is, this is why we're willing to pay so much and, and rearrange our lives to be there because it's a little taste of a moment where you get to be in a room with a lot of different people, but all focused on one thing, 
Isn't that euphoric to be in those places and everybody is on the exact same page? There's no daylight between you and anybody else, even though you know under any other circumstances we would not be kind of rooting for the same thing or even relating or even talking to each other. I think the reason why those events are so attractive to us and so compelling is because they're a glimmer of transcendence. But here's the problem. Every game has a game clock that runs out. And at the end of the game, everybody drives back home to their house and their garage door goes down. Every concert has a last song and it's followed by a lot of long drives home. And all of the differences that were in the room and transcended by the experience of what was going on now reappear and everybody goes back to their tribe and their corner. And those differences now separate them as they did before. So we go to these things, we latch on to these things because we want to be a part of something so much bigger than myself. And I want to be connected to you in that moment. The letdown is that we've never found a place or an event where that lasts where it doesn't run out after 90 minutes or 48 minutes or whatever, but it stays. But here's the thing. You might not have been able to hear Jenna, but if you read the passage that was on your chair or in your Bible that you're holding, she read of a community of people where the evidence was just leaping off the page of that phenomenon People who have no business being in the same room together, no business being on the same page together about the same things, who are bound together to the point that they have everything in common, is what Luke says, to the point that if this person needs something, this person is selling a house, a very complicated, long process, so that there would be money to give to this person. People who are of one mind, one heart, one soul, he even says, So here's the claim that Luke is making. Here's the claim that God is making. There is a place in this life, in this time, in this world where you can be in a room full of people wildly different than you and yet all still in the same direction on the same page and it lasts forever. And the reason there is this place is because it's a work that God is doing in renewing humanity, in rolling back the effects of, that sin and evil have done that keep us separate from each other and suspicious of each other. And when I say Christian community, I'm talking about the kind of relationships that exist inside this thing called the church. Chip was talking about it, but, but when I say church, I mean a community of people who are alive in Jesus. You have seen your need of his mercy. He's made you alive. You're resurrected. You know God. And what God has done to you is not just make you alive to him, but he's made you alive to other people to brothers and sisters in the room. So, if this does exist, and I'm still with you, if you don't believe the claim that this is possible, stick with me. But if it, if it exists, if the church or Christian community is a place where you can tap into this and taste it and know it and participate in it, but the clock never runs out, then where does it come from? What's its source? Isn't that the million-dollar question? How do I get that? Well, where it comes from is really obvious because it comes right after. It's the next thought in Luke's mind after he talked about, he describes the events of Pentecost that we spent all of last week talking about. 
This moment in time in Jerusalem where Jesus pours out his spirit on his people. When I say his people, I meant people who had no business and no interest in him, no business with him. Peter said they were the people who crucified Jesus. Remember, they're cut to the heart. They say, what must we do to be saved? They realize they, I have blood on my hands. I have no excuses. I need mercy, not rationalizations or excuses. Well, Jesus has mercy on these people, and he doesn't just forgive them. He fills them with his Holy Spirit. And the next thought in Luke's mind, the next thing that happens is chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers, and all came on every soul, and all who believed were together and had everything in common. When God binds you to Jesus, which is what he does when you become a Christian, he binds you to everybody else who's bound to Jesus. The Bible's metaphors for these things are branches in a trunk. We are different branches of one tree. We are different parts of one body is how the Bible describes what a Christian is. That's where community comes from. Our community and our relationships with one another is totally dependent on our communion and our relationship with God. He is the bridge that goes between us. We'll flesh this out in a few minutes. But if, but if you want to know what the source is, the source is the same spirit that makes you alive in the first place, is the one who connects you to other people as well. And this is something that This isn't a special luxury, like if you go to enough camps and conferences and learn about it, then you can attain this kind of community. Luke assumes God says this is is normal. This is to be expected for his people. Not my idea. He says it. Chapter 2, verse 44. And all who believed, all who believed were together and had all things in common. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, all of them were of one heart, one mind, one soul. This is normal, he's saying. This is not the spiritually elite or some extra special level of Christians. God is saying that if you're a Christian, this is the kind of community he has opened up for you to have with your brothers and your sisters. What's described in this that we're reading tonight? So what is it that bound them all together? What did they have in common? He says it multiple times. They had everything in common. Well, what did they have in common? Here's what they had in common. Something that for their whole lives had been outside of them came inside of them. Something that they'd heard about or seen or denied or run from or ignored had somehow invaded them and become a part of them. Particularly, he says, the grace and the power of God. I'll have to send you to last week. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but everything we talked about last week in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, that's what they had in common. This was a room full of people. These were churches full of people by the thousands, growing hourly by the thousands. These were communities of people who were all cut to the heart, which means they had heard God from the scriptures, speak to them and engage them. And they, it said, it, they, they heard the word, they listened to it. And it says in the end of chapter 2, they received it. And because they listened to it, they weren't kind of doing the Herschel Walker thing of I'm going to run through it, I'm going to nod, 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 ignore, ignore, ignore. 
but they sat under the authority of the voice of their maker. And they listened. To what was at first bad news, right? Peter wasn't playing around. Peter said, you, this Jesus who God raised from the dead, you crucified. That's a big claim. And he said, blood is on our hands. Well, by God's grace, they sat under that. They listened. They heard. They received it. Therefore, the word cut them to their hearts. The impenetrable heart, the rock hard heart, the brick wall of a heart finally became penetrable, permeable. Grace gets in. Truth gets in. Life gets in. That's what these people shared in common. So this wasn't a kind of a group of spiritual all-stars. These were people who had just confessed, yes, I agree with you, God. I am not the great person my friends think I am or my parents think I am. I need a savior. I'm dead and I need resurrection. That's what they shared in common. I need help. Better yet, I need mercy. That's what bound them together. But also what bound them together is God's response to them was the same. He's a friend of sinners. He loves to hear the plea for mercy. He, 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 he almost flinches towards it and is near to the brokenhearted. So they shared that in common too. A bunch of people sitting around telling war stories of what my life was when Jesus looked at me and moved towards me in mercy. So they shared that in common too. These are the kind of things that he's saying they shared in common. Paul kind of summarizes this later on in another letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, he says that Jesus died so that those of us who live would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. So, he said, the consequence of that is that we no longer live for ourselves and we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view, which means I don't just see you as another random person floating in and out of my life, but your family, your brothers, your sisters, It's we, not me and you. It's us who are in this together. We are people who should be able to finish each other's sentences because of what we share in common. This deep, humbling work of God where he has cut us to the heart. And we own that together where he has not just left us where we were, but he's breathed life into us. And we see him and we know him now. We share that in common. We share this daily being put back together, being renewed. We share daily failures. And these are the things that bind us together. Paul summarized that. I'll summarize Paul. Remember, it's what we talked about two weeks ago. What God does when he when he shows grace to a person, he doesn't just forgive you. He turns you inside out. Sinclair Ferguson, remember what he said? He turns you into a centrifugal person. If all of us are by nature centripetal people, we're just this black hole sucking life in from all around us, into us. Give me, give me, give me. I need, I need. We have parasitic relationships with food, with grades, with status, with glory, with friendships, with substances. Give me, give me, give me life. That's a centripetal person. Everybody's on the take. Everybody's wondering, what can I get from this person? Can I get a laugh out of them? Can I get a like out of them? Can I get a date out of them? Can I get a grade out of them? Can I get an internship out of them? That's a centripetal person. And that's how we kind of enter the world and how we remain unless God has mercy on you. And when he does and if he does, he turns you into a centrifugal person where you begin to spin out life on other people. 
He turns you inside out. Your life begins to revolve around him and other people. You're aware of other people in a way you didn't used to be. You're available to other people in a way you didn't used to be. You see them. You want to know them. So life's not all about you anymore. It's also about God and other people. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, I'm going to stick with me. This is pretty understandable, but a little long. He says, you see, here's the difference in Christianity. We all spend, we all spend our lives auditioning before each other, trying to get the role. I want you to like me. I want you to respect me, love me, whatever else. I feel like I'm auditioning in front of you all the time. And you do too with other people. And we feel like we're always auditioning in front of God. Did I get the part? Is he going to accept me? Is he going to forget about that stuff in the past and like start over? Can I get back into his good graces? We're always auditioning and waiting for a verdict. I like you. I accept you. I'll love you. But he says it's all the reverse in the gospel. He says, you see, the verdict is in. And now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because God loves me and accepts me, I don't have to do things just to build my resume. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. Wow, life seems to be returning. I can help people simply to help people. Not go on a mission trip because it makes me feel good about myself. How do you think the people you're serving on the mission trip feel to hear that comment? You were there for you? Keller is saying the gospel turns you inside out and it sends you out to other people. You help people simply for the sake of helping people. He says, "Not we don't do this so we can feel good about ourselves or fill the emptiness. And he says, do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheists might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person, and they hope that eventually they'll get a verdict that confirms that they're a good person. Performance is trying to lead to a verdict. For the Buddhists, too, performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All of this means that every day you're in the courtroom. Every day you're on trial. That's the problem. But Paul is saying that in Christianity, the verdict leads to performance. Friends, did you know that the second you become a Christian, God says over you, well done, son. Well done, daughter. Good and faithful servant. Did you think the Christian life was living your life hoping that one day you might hear that verdict spoken over you? If you have, I have enormous just amazing news for you. It's the reverse. You've heard really bad news if that's what you've heard growing up. That God is calling you to live a certain way so that he will say, well done. He spoke those words only, Jesus only, over Jesus only. So if you see your need for Jesus, it can't be about my performance. Every audition I botch, I've ruined them all. I need him to freely speak a verdict over me. To speak that verdict he said over Jesus. I need him to say it over me. If that's what you know you need. And he speaks that verdict over you. That's the starting pistol of the Christian life. You are loved. Well done. You're faithful. You're beloved. I delight in you. I love you. I like you. You live your whole life every day under that umbrella. That banner of love. You're not trying to get it. You have it. Can you imagine the communal ripple effects if you had that kind of peace, certainty, confidence in your insides? Are, do you, are the dots connecting? Do you see how tonight you'd be available to notice other people and go be about what's going on in their lives and ask them, how are you doing? If 
you knew the verdict is in and I'm one of the beloved. God has favor on me. He's already given the verdict. I'm not auditioning. You see the communal effects of being right with God when he turns you inside out and sends you out towards other people. You're unleashed into the world, no longer auditioning, but you get to increasingly inhabit this role he's given you as a lover of others. That's the cause of Christian community. It's the work of the Spirit, not just in you, but in all the yous in this room. It's a work from him. It's not our work. It's his work. Just like conversion, we receive community from him in that way. Number two, the other thing I said we'd talk about was, what's the character of it? We've already kind of started talking about this, the character. What's distinct about Christian community? And is there something distinct? There's a lot of articles coming out recently in the Atlantic, New York Times, and the, the, the plot line is similar. Around the world as the West, kind of Europe and America, secularize. There's more and more people who are kind of church people when they were younger, but they aren't anymore. They don't believe any of it anymore. They think Christianity is a crock and all religion is. But they loved the community. They crave community. Relationships with other people. And so they, they've started forming these atheist churches uh, in, in England here. And about 10 years ago, they were just a burgeoning network of these atheist churches that you could go to and hear a talk. It's like a TED talk, singing, like sing some Eagles song or some Beatles song, sharing what's going on in your life. People have attempted to replicate this kind of community. Now, here's the thing. Here's what the New York Times article said. As quickly as those grew up, they vanished. It's not sustainable. Why? Because the room is filled with people who are very broken, as you and I are, who are still filled with struggles, still filled with doubts, skepticism, everything else. But there is no transcendent presence, no force, no person who's bigger than all the little diversities, all the little problems in the room. And so they fracture and they splinter and people want to sleep in. So what was a huge movement 10 years ago has fizzled into nothing now. Is there something distinct about Christian community that would be different than one of those atheist churches 10 years ago? Would RUFBC, is there anything different than that? Because they had songs, they had messages, they had relationship groups, dinner groups. What are the distinct things about it? We've already talked about one, you're set free from yourself. Only God can do that. There we go. Only God can do that. The church is a place that is filled with people who are slowly getting over themselves. Their lives are more and more orbiting around God and how great he is. Didn't you see all the evidence in what Jenna read earlier, what you read of these centrifugal lives? These people are literally selling homes, possessions, belongings. They're, they're selling them and they're taking the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. And they're saying, you use this how you see fit. Whoever has needs, take my money and give it to them. Does it get more centrifugal and costly and sacrificial than that? We're talking about houses. This is the Middle East. Your house was your father's house, your grandfather's house, your great-grandfather's house. And that land. It was your insurance. It was your bank account. It was what made tomorrow safe for you. 
It's like cashing out your 401k and your bank accounts and maxing out your credit cards and saying, if they have needs, I have resources. Take what I have and give it to them. This is not communism. Luke's very clear. It was their belongings. He didn't say this is all God's. You got to give it away. This is voluntary. And he didn't say you got to give it all away. Here's a certain percentage. You see what happens when the spirit gets a hold of your heart and you start seeing and noticing your brothers and sisters. You start caring about what they need. And you walk back into your bedroom or back into your car. and You're like, I got something. All these freshmen here in the room tonight who don't have rides. Some of you have been walking 45 minutes from ECV to Tuesday nights. And some of you who have cars without being asked heard of the need and offered the ride. Fall conference is coming up in a month. Every single time we do fall conference, there's always one or two of you who pays double and says, if there's someone out there who needs a scholarship, I'll do it. That's what happens when the spirit of Jesus gets a hold of you. Your life starts spinning out towards other people in blessing and in grace. How countercultural is this? The way that we often think is my humor is for my advance and my friend groups. My personality is for my climbing the social ladder. My car is for me. My money is for me. My, my job prospects is all for me. My skill set is all for me. Not if you're in Jesus. It's all for him and it's all for the people sitting next to you. And there is joy, he says, in beginning to give these things away. That God has given to you. Lastly, we push on to the third point. Do you, have you drunk the Kool-Aid that I feel like I drink every hour of every day that you're too busy for this kind of community? You're like selling houses, selling possessions. My, this is like all in, all of your skin in the game. I don't have time for that. I got other responsibilities. I got to study. I got to have good grades to get that job. Dennis Johnson, a a theologian, says it was not easier in the first century than it is in the 20th to come together and stay together in genuine Christian community. There were no fewer distractions and no fewer temptations towards selfish, aloof individualism, protective of one's privacy. The early church was a gathering of people who rejoiced to be together consistently, to eat and share and serve alongside one another. We can't look back and say, well, easy for them to say they didn't have lights after dark. They just kind of like sat around all day. Same distractions, same temptations to say, here's the fine print on this community. Not now. You need it. The people sitting next to you need you. Yes, now. Yes, now. What if you're sitting in your chair and you're thinking, oh, my goodness. I've never looked at my car and seen it as a resource to serve all the people here that don't have cars. I've never thought of my money as a, something that can change a reality for somebody else. I've never thought about my personality as a magnet that I can help other people connect to. And you're feeling convicted. Well, what do you do? How did these people grow? It would be a mistake to say that automatically these people just woke up and it's all like Mother Teresa sitting around like, I love you. I want to sell my house for you. The Spirit brought them to a place where that was increasingly their second nature, their instincts. How do I know that happened? The very first verse that Jenna read earlier, 
2.42 says they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. That's how they grew. That's how they became increasingly centrifugal people. What's the apostles' teaching? He says in chapter 4, the testimony of Jesus' resurrection. The testimony of the apostles wasn't just everything in the Bible and all the stuff in the Bible. It was specifically the good news that Jesus saves you from yourself. He sets you free. He makes you a lover of people again and a lover of God again. That was their testimony. And it says they were devoted to it, which means fixated, obsessed, captivated. That story was the action on the field that they couldn't get their eyes off of. That was the action they were singing about in one voice. Those were the jerseys they were wearing. Is this resurrected God on the move in this broken, complicated world? That's what made them get up in the morning. And the more they were steeped in that story, it's real, it's real, it's real, it's real, it's real. The more their lives began to help and bless other people. Here's an implication. Here's, a, here's something to take away from that, what I just said. I bet because you're a Southerner and an American in 2019 like me, when you think of the Spirit's work in your life, we often think first emotional experience, right? Are you with me? I do. I still do. You think feeling, you think mystical thing, charismatic experience, some Pentecostal experience. That is not what's being depicted here. What's being depicted here is an early church that's a, that's a learning church. They're studying. They're reading. They're listening. They're thinking. They're discussing. They're being shaped by the word of God. Not just kind of continually having these Eastern mystical experiences night and day. They're learning. And they're growing. And by the grace of God, they're connecting dots. And beginning to move out. And we're the same. This is why we sit here. This is why we spend 35 minutes every Wednesday night talking about the Bible. Because you won't change if you don't have that. You will not change if you're always trying to replicate these emotional experiences. That's not simply what this work of the Spirit is like. The work of the Spirit is talking to you about the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. And his willingness to save you and change you. That's how people change and get turned inside out. Oh, we could go a lot deeper into this, but we don't have time. How does this affect your relationship with other people, this learning, studying community? Here's how I've, I read this last spring when we were in a different series, but A.W. Tozer said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to one another? They're of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to a different standard to which each one must individually bow. So also 100 worshipers gathered together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes from God to strive being closer to each other. Here's what he's saying. You can't get the kind of community being described here. You want to be at one heart, one mind, one soul with other people? Do you want your life to be about something bigger than yourself? The only way that happens is as your life is tuned to the piano of this gospel, to the person of Jesus and what he's done. I can't come to you and do the thing we often do, like, man, that guy's really cool. I want to get to know you. Can we be friends? 
That's one piano going to another piano saying, let's tune each other to each other. Let's see if we're compatible. That's the world's way of community. It's a tender kind of community, T-I-N-D-E-R, like the app. Are we compatible? How much do we have in common? What affinities do we share? Do I like you? Do you like me? Then let's... And, and, and the church, it's not... Look at these people. There are Greeks. There are Jews. There's people raised Jewish, people raised pagan, worshiping Zeus. And they're all coming together. And it's not a compatibility-based community. If you go that way your life of trying to tune yourself to other people and say, are you playing an E2? I am too. This is awesome. I love this person. Here's the danger in that. You will spend the rest of your life having to retune yourself to your best friends and everybody else. Why? You change and people change, right? You will quickly grow out of friendship with all of your friends because they're changing and so are you. And it's exhausting and it's narcissistic. Do you, do you bring me joy? <laughs> do you really want people to love you based on the fact that you bring them joy? What happens when you let them down? What happens when you drop the ball? You're a bad friend. You don't want that, friends. You want friends who are both looking to the same thing, tuned to Jesus. And you are too. And by virtue of both being tuned to the same chord, you're in tune with each other as well. That's where community happens, as we look to what Luke calls the apostles' teaching, the gospel. That's how we get closer to each other. It's how I get closer to you. I'm more empathetic and patient with you because I remember who you are. You are with me. You meet me where I am, and I try to meet you where you are. And when I don't, I say, I'm sorry. I never really, when I said, how are you doing, I wasn't really asking, and I'm sorry for that. How are you doing? We start putting our cards on the table and we start saying, hey, you thought I was this, but this is happening in my life right now and I am terrified to let somebody see it, but I need someone to see it. That's how these things happen. Really quickly, these last two are together, the cancers of community and the consequence of real community. I don't know if you heard it. I mean, maybe it's a good thing the mic went out for the chapter five part of this that Jenna read with Ananias and Sapphira. What do you do with that? All this great stuff, beautiful stuff. This is how you know Luke's not being, he's not romanticizing community and being idealistic because two people just died because they lied about selling a house to bring money to the apostles. Okay, maybe this isn't a romantic ideal. Maybe this is real. Here's what's going on there. Nobody required Ananias and Sapphira, two people who were saying they're Christians, part of this kind of spirit-filled community. Nobody said you got to go sell your stuff and give it to the poor. Nobody said that. They did it probably because they wanted to appear like everybody else who was doing it. They wanted the notoriety. They wanted the fame of seeing, look at this, like the people who give money on campus in the so-and-so library. They, they were pretending. They were posturing. They were hypocrites. There was not a true love of their neighbor animating that transaction. It was a love of self. They were still centripetal people. And this action that they did, this plan that they had, thought would bring them more attention, bring them more life, bring them more respect. Why the response? The guy dies when he lies to Peter. And he says, we made $10,000. And Peter's like, you made $20,000. Why did you lie? He doesn't die because of what he did. He dies because he refuses to repent. 
and own up to what he did. And same with his wife. Why the consequence? The spirit of Jesus loves his church. And especially in this infant age of his church, protects her like I protect my kids from snakes in my backyard. Their head is off so that my kids are safe. Hypocrisy, pretending, thinking that you can deceive God, that he doesn't see into your heart. Posturing in front of each other is cancer. And God takes it very seriously. Should you expect to get knocked dead on your feet when we do this? I hope not. I don't think you should. I think this is a unique moment in time where the Spirit is saying, I stand up for my church and I will not let this danger go unnoticed and unchallenged. But should it produce a healthy fear of God in you? You bet, because that's what the passage says. Fear filled them all. Awe filled them all. When you come to church... When you even come to RUF, meet with a Christian friend, does the hair on the back of your head ever stand up? Do you realize what you're dealing with? This is the spirit-filled community of the resurrected people of God. It is not something to be toyed with, messed with, slandered, abused, thrown under the bus. Do you have a healthy respect and awe and reverence for what you're a part of and where you are? This isn't just another social club. This is the church. And the spirit of Jesus dwells in it. The consequence of this, the consequence of a spirit-filled community where we take God seriously and each other seriously and we move towards each other in mercy, compassion, love, where I see your needs and move to meet them at my own expense. Imagine a community where everybody's doing that. Everybody's being honest. Everybody is willing to adapt to your weird personality and not make you feel like you're weird. But they honor you. Everybody does that. Do you understand what happens to the world? People notice. People want to be a part of it. It's a magnetic community. And that's what Luke says as well. They found favor in all the people. All the people who weren't Christians. All the people who mocked and laughed and ridiculed and oppressed now are saying... What's going on here? I end with this story. My friend Chris Curry, some of you all know him because you were here when he was here. He is a Christian because of Ultimate Frisbee in RUF. He was an atheist when he got to Georgia freshman year. His hallmate, Brian Fry, invited him to come play uh, Ultimate Frisbee at the intramural fields with RUF one night. Chris would come back. He loved Ultimate Frisbee. He'd come back week after week. What started to intrigue him is how Brian's friends treated each other. These are cool people. But they actually like, they know each other. They're real. They're not just joking around all the time, but there's like stuff of substance they're talking about. So he started coming where he heard the teaching of the apostles, which God always promises to work through. Turned his life upside down. He's a pastor in Philly now, planning a church right now. That's the consequence of Christian community, is redemption. It's mercy. It's growth. Let's pray. Jesus, oh, how far we feel from this oftentimes. Come and make this true of us. Thank you for making it true of us, but saturate us in your teaching that, that you might more and more turn us inside out, send us out as centrifugal people to bless 
first the church, then the world. Would the Christian communities in Athens, the churches, the ministries, all of them be known for their love, for their self-forgetfulness, for their captivation with you? We ask it in your name. Amen.